I want to say at the very beginning of our lesson, I want to be very, very clear. It is true that when the church assembles for worship, regardless of the size of the crowd, the Lord is with us. Before we go any further, I want to establish that and be very clear. For example, we have a much larger crowd today than we did on Wednesday night. But on Wednesday night, the Lord was with us as much as he is today in this assembly. So we, have a, we, we want to make that clear and we want to understand that. Now, but what we're talking about is we're talking about the requirements for scriptural assembly and scriptural worship. And when we look at that, we're going to do this very briefly, we look to see how it is that we get Bible authority. And we all know this. We all understand about the hermeneutic for interpreting Scripture. It falls into these four categories. We get Bible authority by a command. We get Bible authority by an approved example. We get Bible authority by a positive statement of truth and even get Bible authority by way of inference or implication. And in all four of these categories, we find that we have instruction and authorization to not only worship, but also how we assemble. For example, we are commanded in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25, we are commanded to assemble ourselves together. What about an example? When do we assemble ourselves together? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says that it's on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So, one more here. We find that there is a positive statement of truth. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So far, we are commanded to assemble, Hebrews 10.25. We have an example of that assembly on the first day of the week, Acts 20 and 7. We find in a positive statement that we have to assemble, we assemble with the church. Very important, with the church. The question is, how does the church assemble? How did they assemble by way of an example? Paul, in his writings to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, it says, Therefore, when you come together in one place. That's what they did. They came together in one place. You know what's beautiful is 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 23, it ties the previous verses together. How did they come together on the first day of the week? 1 Corinthians 14, 23, therefore the whole church comes together in one place. When the whole church comes together in one place for the purpose of worship, the Lord is in our presence absolutely. Absolutely. When we follow the Bible pattern for that. We can even notice also about inference and implication in First in Acts chapter 15 when it says they were dismissed. It necessarily infers or implies if they were dismissed that previous to that they were assembled. So we have authorization for assembling as the body of Christ. Now, there is no Bible authority for members privately meeting separate from the whole church. And uh, I'm talking about 
separating themselves from the congregation. Now, I want to ask a question here, a question to ponder and think about. Is it scriptural for people or for the church as a whole to assemble in a home in somebody's house and all come together and have that be a scriptural assembly? Absolutely. If we decided that we could all fit, we're all going to go to Terry's house, and we decided that at Terry Osborne's house, the whole church is going to come together in that one place and worship, that is scriptural. We can do that. You know why? Because it's the whole church coming together in one place. The early church, for example, in the book of Acts, when the church began to, to grow, the Bible talks about the fact that they met from house to house. You know why? They were smaller congregations and there were no buildings. They met from house to house. Scriptural. Yes, we can do that. That's not my point, though. My point, though, is, is it scriptural for someone to peel off from the congregation and meet in their home? We want to talk about that in just a minute. But scriptural worship is when the church comes together in one place. So, in light of the scriptures so far, let's answer some of those questions that we noticed in our introduction from this passage. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's notice some questions. Number one, is this verse talking about worship? No. Is this verse referring to prayer meetings? No. Is this verse authorizing private worship of two or three, for example, on a fishing boat, on vacation, on a cruise somewhere? No. Does this verse authorize families to worship in their home instead of with the whole church without starting a separate congregation? Answer to that is, once again, no. And we're going to notice the answers to that to prove that point as we go into the context of the passage. Now, I want to make a point, an example, that this man here could probably tell it better than I could. Terry Osborne could probably tell the history far more than I could because he lived in Africa. But I don't know if it was in the 40s or 50s or whenever it was that Paul and Wilma Nichols went to Africa. They didn't just buy a plane ticket like I would do today and fly. They got on a ship. They got on a ship. And it took weeks to get there, from what I'm told. And during the process of that time, you know what those people did, the two or three did? They worshipped on the ship. Now, what's the difference between that and me and Tina going on a vacation, going on a cruise, and we decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go on a cruise and have it go over Sunday, and we'll just stay here on the ship in our little room and two or three together, and we'll worship. You know what the difference is? The difference is if Tina and I did that, what we've done is we've separated ourselves from the church we didn't come together with the church, and that's unscriptural to do so. We've already proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's number one. Number two, why was it okay for Paul and Wilma Nichols to do that? I'll tell you. They were going to Africa to start a congregation. They were the church. They were the church. So when they met on that ship, they were the church. They weren't on vacation. They were the church in Africa. They were the congregation of the body of Christ in the place that they were going. They just had to travel there to get there first. That's the difference. Big, big difference. Okay, so if these gatherings are not worship and they're not prayer meetings, from the context of 15 to 19, those verses, we have to know that. 
We're going to find out what the gatherings actually were. What was the Lord talking about? Well, let's look at verse 15 of chapter 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, let me first say that too often these verses have been viewed as cold, hard methodology or a formula for disfellowship. But you know, that's not the tone of this passage at all. Now, it's true that the outlines for discipline are to be followed to the letter, sure. But these aren't designed to produce disfellowship. Discipline, get this please, is designed to produce restoration. Not disfellowship. Disfellowship is a consequence that happens as a result of someone that's in sin and refuses to repent in that, in that capacity. But the motive behind the whole thing is restoration. It's a beautiful passage here, beautiful pattern if people would just follow that. So in chapter 18 and verse 15, here is the context. He said, if your brother sins against you. Now, the word brother here is used in a generic sense referring to anyone that is baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And it could be a man or it could be a woman. It doesn't matter. And what the Lord is saying here, he says, if your baptized believing brother or sister sins, which means miss the mark, Against you, meaning it is personal and private. Please understand the rules of Matthew 18 are limited to a personal conflict, a personal sin, one against somebody else, personally and individually. Now, Jesus says this is what you're going to do. He says when that happens, you're going to go tell him his fault. You know what sometimes people do, though? They wallow in the anger of it. They hold a grudge. Have you ever known somebody that held a grudge all of their life? First of all, what a terrible existence, what a terrible way to live. And you know what? You violate the Word of God. If a person has been sinned against and is not willing to do that, they are violating the word of God and the command from the Lord. If somebody sins against me personally, I have to go and tell him his fault. Now, that's a matter of being proactive. These are steps that lead to resolution. This instruction does not mean that the guilty party is the only one that has a responsibility. In fact, you know what was beautiful? When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, this is perfect. If you ever want to know how to get along when you have conflict, here it is. We've already noticed here so far that Jesus said, if somebody sins against me, Frank Brancato, I have to go and tell him. That's number one, right? Well, you know what? Jesus dealt with the other side too. He dealt with the offender in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. Look, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So look at this. You have somebody over here that is the offended. 
You have somebody over here that is the offender. And if we're following what Jesus said, you know what those two people are doing? They are running with open arms, not clenched fists, full bore running to each other to try to settle the matter and put it away. What a beautiful picture. You've got two people running in the same direction to put it away. Now here's where we usually mess up. This is where we usually make a mistake. He said, go tell him his fault and keep that between you and him alone. You know what we do sometimes, though? Instead of doing that, we start telling other people about it first. We want to tell everybody about it. Man, let me tell you what, just sorry, Terry. Let me tell you what Terry did to me. Let me tell you about that guy. And then I go over to Doy. Hey, did you hear about Terry? I'm going to tell you what he did to me. Unfortunately, too often, that's what we do. Jesus said, don't do that. He said, keep it between you and him alone. Amazing passage. Keep it to yourself. Now, there's a difference between someone that is spreading dirt and someone who is asking for advice of wisdom, somebody that's older and wiser than you, and you ask for advice. The book of Proverbs is filled with passages that support going after and getting hearty counsel. That's not what I'm talking about. Because if I'm a young man and I've been sinned against, maybe I want to go talk to one of the elders. Maybe I want to talk to a preacher that's older than I respect. Maybe a father and explain that to him. And what should I do? How should I do it? I know Jesus said for me to go talk to him. Do you have some words that I might say? Give me some wisdom. That's different. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is instead of going to him alone, go tell everybody else first. And that's oftentimes where we mess up. You want to know why the Lord's so brilliant in so many ways? No wonder they called him the master. Do you know what happens when a person goes to talk to another person all by themselves and they keep it to themselves? You know what happens? The following. It allows both parties to sort out the details privately. What else? It's less confrontational. And it's less embarrassing. If you go to talk to somebody about a sin that they committed against you, that's embarrassing to hear. If everybody's there. Or a bunch of people are there. Jesus starts with this beautiful pattern. He says you're going to go to him. You're going to go to him alone. It allows both parties to sort out their things privately. It's not embarrassing. And what else? It sets a more conducive tone for love and mutual understanding. In other words, it gets results. And that really is the point. It gets results. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18 and 15, in this verse, Jesus said, when that happens, when he sins against you and you go tell him his fault and you keep it to himself and he hears you and listens, you know what Jesus said? You have gained your brother. Now, if you gained your brother in that respect, it means you lost your brother. You can't gain what you have not lost. But the word gain is a very interesting word. In fact, the Greek word there for gained in the English language, originally it meant this. It meant this. It meant a term of commerce referring to financial profit or gain. In other words, something of great value. If I gain something, same Greek word, I gain it financially, it is held in high value. That's what the Lord is using. He's using that word 
gained to describe the value of your brother when you get him back. Beautiful passage. You have gained something of great value. Now please note here, this is talking about real sin. This is real sin. This isn't Dave Morgan annoys me. I'm irritated. He is irritating me. Or so-and-so has these little minor faults and it bothers me. None of those things apply to this passage. We are not talking about irritations and weaknesses and struggles. We are talking about sin. And we're talking about a personal sin, one against another. In fact, let's just flip that over. Let's flip that over. You know, long-suffering is a Christian virtue, 1 Corinthians 13 and 5. We need to be patient with each other. Never patient with sin. But patient with each other when they have little minor faults or they have little irritations. I'm going to tell you, when you have all these people in a congregation and everybody's got these personalities, somebody's going to irritate somebody. It's the way it is. So if you're irritated, don't take this the wrong way. If you're irritated, get over it. Have long-suffering and patience. Get over it. If it's sin, go talk to your brother personally and directly. Now, but then Jesus says this. There's something else. If, in fact, he will not hear, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. In other words, before the accuser rushes to get others involved... He has to ensure that the step in the previous verse has failed. And that means perhaps that the offender had to be addressed more than once. Do you know it never says, Jesus never said, you can only go one time to work it out. Never said that. He didn't say that. He didn't say the first thing I got to do is so I can hurry up and I really want to get to the end where I can take it to before the church. So I really got to get this ball rolling. Well, I got I to fulfill step number one. I'll go over that. Okay, I got that one out of the way. Now we're going to get to the next way. First of all, the whole mindset and, and spirit behind that is wrong. The whole mindset's wrong. And it never says you can only go to talk to that brother individually one time. Never says it. And I'll just tell you this. If you really have the right attitude and the right spirit behind the whole thing, you would gladly meet again a second time or a third time privately that maybe you can work this out and help your brother see that he has sinned against you. Because you know what the next phrase is? If he will not hear, that phrase, Lenski says, carries the idea of a definite refusal to hear and be convicted. In other words, you have exhausted everything you can from a personal standpoint, and there's nothing else you can do, nothing else you can do, so then you have to go to the next step. Jesus says if he still won't hear, you know, we just studied the seven churches of Asia. It took us a long time to go through that. Every time that the Lord at the end of those letters says, let he who has an ear hear. The word here does not mean just the audible sound of it. We're talking about listening with the, with the purpose of obeying when it comes to the Lord. And here it is the listening for the purpose of change, correction, conviction. 
Jesus says, if he won't do that, then you're going to do this. Take with you one or two more. Now, this is not a lynch mob. This is not a, a way to gang up on people either. These witnesses do something very important. Number one, they are there to make sure that sin actually took place. Just because somebody said that they've been sinned against doesn't necessarily mean that a sin actually occurred. So let's just say, for example, I go to so-and-so and I said, you sinned against me. He said, wait a minute, I didn't sin. I didn't sin. He won't hear me. I take two or three more. You know what they're going to do? Those reasonable, wise people, Christians, are going to sit there in that same meeting and they're going to help to determine whether or not they were sinned. You know what they might say? Frank Broncato, you are wrong. They did not sin. Wasn't guilty. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll get over it then. See the point? Number two, though, not only are they there to ensure that sin took place, but number two, to also make sure that the offender is properly and lovingly handled. Again, we're going back to this. Discipline is for the purpose of restoration. Remember last, the, the last uh, letter that we did to the Church of Asia? Jesus talked about that very idea, talked about Jesus would never say when he said, I'd rather have you be cold or hot. He would never have you say, I wish you just quit. That's not what he ever meant. It's not what that means. The Lord always wants restitution, but he also wants people to come back and make things right. Now, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16 again, he says this phrase here that's a very powerful phrase. Here's what he says when you take two or three more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You know this principle that Jesus sets forth has its roots in the Mosaic legal system. Moses commanded that accusations be confirmed by two or three witnesses for the purpose of ensuring that innocent people are not falsely accused. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 19 and 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Not by one, but by two or three the matter may be established. Make sure that innocent people are not falsely accused. You know, every Jew, including the apostles, knew about this precept. In fact, on several occasions, the apostles repeat the concept in bringing New Testament revelation. For example, time will not let us go there, but 2 Corinthians 13 and 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. Now, here's the structure. Your brother sins against you and it's personal and private. You go to him. If he hears you, you gain your brother. And what have you gained? Something of tremendous high value. Wonderful. But if he won't hear you, regardless of all that you've tried to do, you're going to take two or three more. Talking about two or three people that have wisdom and they're going to sit there and sift through it. And if, in fact, the person actually has sinned and they tell him that, then hopefully and prayerfully the person will see the error of his way and make it right. If he won't, though, if he refuses, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, when I think about this, I think about this little structure that the Lord put forward. And he said this. Really, basically, this is what he's saying. The steps are private to semi-private and then to public. 
private to semi-private, and then to public. He said, from a public standpoint, tell it to the church. And may I say, in the eyes of God, there is no higher court in the world than the Lord's church. And no authority is greater than the authority addressed and given in a local congregation. What he's talking about is, he's not saying, let's go tell the brotherhood. He says, tell it to the church. That is the ecclesia. That is the called out. That is the congregants, your congregation. And if the church should be able to influence his own members, hopefully they can, then he will make things right. One scholar said this, though, and I thought it was worth mentioning, and I hope that we can remember this. He said, if the bonds of fellowship and friendship are strong, then the erring member will be more naturally want to return to the fold. And that's why we have to work to cultivate bonds. You know, one of the saddest things that I see today in the religious world with gigantic churches and so forth is the fact that they don't have relationships with all the members. Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians 12. He called it a body. Everybody's needed. You are the body of Christ and members individually or in particular. Every member in the body of Christ is needed. So how in the world can we be so big and not have a knowledge of another member? If we have those nurturing attitudes, we have that kind of a relationship, when the congregation speaks to that person, there is so much bond there that just perhaps he'll listen and make those things right. All right, but if that doesn't work, unfortunately, if that doesn't work, if he refuses to even hear the church, he says, let him be as a heathen and a tax collector. That's the new King James, and uh, that's publican in the King James. But remember this, Jesus was still living under Jewish law. The apostles were still living under Jewish law. And the church was not established yet. That didn't happen till Acts 2. So now, Jesus is going to use two examples now, two examples of people that are outside Jewish fellowship. They would have understood that. So he said this, if they won't hear the church, let him be as a heathen. You know what the word heathen means? It's talking about a Gentile who was such by birth. But in particular, those that were steeped in paganism. There was a time when the nation of Israel was God's people and everybody outside the nation of Israel was not God's people. So you know what? They would have understood that a heathen, a Gentile, one that is in paganism, they would have understood they're not within Jewish fellowship. They would have understood that. Jesus says, if a, if a Christian will not hear the church, let him be as someone that is outside fellowship. You know who else was? The Lord uses the old tax collector. They were guilty of extortion by choice. They were terrible men. Tacitus wrote, by the way, Tacitus, a historian, wrote that when they finally came across a man that was an honest tax collector, you know what they did? They built a monument to his name because they had never seen one. That's history. Jesus says these guys are really outside the Jewish fellowship. That's what a Christian is if he doesn't hear the church. Here's some exceptions. I had to put them up here. I had to put them up here to show that you could change your life. How about Matthew? You know what he was? 
He was a tax collector. You know who he became? An apostle. What about this man right here? What about that little fellow that climbed a sycamore tree to see the king? And he tells Jesus, Zacchaeus, he tells Jesus, if I have defrauded anyone, I will restore him fourfold. Jesus said, today salvation has come to your house. Oh, yes, you can change. The Lord is making a point here, though, about those that are outside of fellowship. He's talking about a time in the future when the church would be established. It would be outside the limits of fellowship, just like, if you wouldn't hear the church, just like an unconverted Gentile steeped in paganism or even a tax collector. Now, there's a reason for this. The reason for discipline is twofold. Number one, you've got to protect the church. You've got to protect the flock. One scholar I read this week said, if a person is in sin and refuses to hear the church, he no longer acts like a sheep he acts like the wolf. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's what he said. So the number one reason for discipline is to protect the church, to keep the church pure. The second thing is, is hopefully and prayerfully, they'll see the error of their way and make it right. Twofold. Twofold. And be restored. So here's the question. How do you treat somebody that's been withdrawn from? Not mean, not rude. How do you talk to somebody? How do you treat them that have been withdrawn from? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15. Watch this. You do not count him as an enemy, but you admonish him as a brother. Do you know that we're not even allowed to be mean to people that are in the world or even people that are mean to us? We're not allowed to do that. And especially somebody that's a brother in Christ that's been withdrawn from. We have to admonish them as a brother, not treat them as an enemy. It doesn't mean that we accept them in their current state because we can't. Why? Jesus said they're outside the bounds of fellowship because they wouldn't hear the church. So, after Jesus gave these instructions in verse 17, this is what he says in verse 18. We're moving right along. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this pronouncement is repeated. This is the same thing Jesus said to Peter in Caesarea Philippi when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and all of that. And he says, and Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now he's addressing the twelve. And in the context of our passage, he's talking about authority extending now beyond the apostles to congregations that continue, to steadfast, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, Acts 2.42. Now, not only does the church have the right to do this, but it also has the responsibility. All right. So what is binding and loosing? J.W. McGarvey said this. Binding is the infliction of penalty of non-fellowship, while loosing is withholding or removing it in cases of repentance. Jesus explains that when done correctly, the decision has the full sanction of heaven. Now, the point can also further be demonstrated grammatically. Notice these phrases in our passage. 
will be bound in heaven and will be loosed in heaven grammatically here. These phrases translate the future perfect passives. You know what that means? It means they can more accurately be rendered like this. Whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. That's what that means. In other words, the church is simply carrying out the directives that heaven has previously set. John MacArthur wrote this, and I agree, I think he's right. He said, the idea is not that God is compelled to conform to the church's decisions, but that when the church follows Christ's pattern for discipline, it conforms its decisions to what God has already done and thereby receives heaven's approval and heaven's authority. That's what that passage, I think, is talking about. We'll be bound in earth, be bound in heaven, loose on earth, loosed in heaven. And then verse 19. And then he says, and I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, with these words, the, the Lord is saying, when two Christians conform to God's will in a situation, God hears them. Jesus uses the number two because that's the smallest number that people could have or the least number that you could have for people having some sort of fellowship with each other. Here's the point. Their solidarity in Christ, though few in number, carries a tremendous influence with the Father. In fact, the word agree comes from a Greek word, that Greek word, and that word means to sound together. Do you know what we get? We get another English word from that Greek word. You know what it is? Kind of fits too. Symphony. Don't you see? You've got people agreeing on earth in accordance with God's plan, in accordance with God's structure regarding discipline. It's bound in heaven already. And you've got people coming together doing that. Not only are they unified together, but they're unified with God in perfect harmony, sounding together. Now, folks, sometimes people think this is a general promise. But in context, we have to keep it within the context of what is written. And that means this. That means in the very next verse... It's the same context of what he's been talking about. Let me prove it a little bit further. In other words, Jesus has said all of this, and then he uses the word for. That Greek word means by fair. It means truly, therefore, or verily, as the case stands. In other words, as a result of everything I've just said, here is the conclusion. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It indicates that the, that the conclusion of this verse is based upon truth. The truth stated in the previous one. So, what are we talking about then? What's the gathering? The gatherings are those gatherings. It's talking about those who assemble for the purpose of administering discipline. That is the context of the passage. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. This, this passage here is probably one of the most misapplied and misunderstood concepts in all the world. It's equal and on par 
with people's misunderstanding of Matthew 7 about judging. People say, don't judge. That's not what he said. He said, the manner that you judge, it shall be judged unto you again. That's what he said. So what's under consideration is not whether you judge in Matthew 7. What's under consideration is the manner in which you judge. Okay? This passage taken out of context, equally so. After all, we're two or three. I can go on a retreat and go under a tree. Two or three. I'm not making fun, folks. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not the passage. That's not what he meant. He's talking about a specific context of gathering regarding discipline. Now, Jesus says this. In my name. In my name, meaning by my authority, where Jesus, regarding the discipline, Jesus is the focal point. In other words, you're doing so, you're gathering out of love for Jesus, out of love for his church, and out of love for doing what's right. That's what it means to gather in his name. And when people come together, Christians come together for that purpose of administering discipline to try to do what's right for the church, you do it in the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says this, and then I am in the midst of them. Now, I said this at the very beginning, and, and I'm going to conclude now. I'm going to conclude and say the following in closing. It doesn't matter the size of the crowd. And we had a very small crowd Wednesday. Very. It doesn't matter the size of the crowd. If the church assembles by the authority of Christ in order to worship and worship scripturally where the church is coming together in one place, the Lord is with us. The Lord is in our midst. But it doesn't mean that me and three of you can peel off and go on vacation, get on a fishing boat, and let's have a little communion, we'll have a little service. After all, two or three. That's not what he means. In closing, what were the requirements to have a scriptural worship? You have to have scriptural assembly. That is where the whole church comes together in one place. That meeting is in an undivided assembly. That is for the purpose of worshiping in spirit and in truth, which is so the spirit's the attitude, but truth is according to revealed truth. And that which is according to God's divine pattern. And when we do that, guess what? The Lord is in our midst regardless of the size. But that passage, that passage is not talking about worship. I'm finished. Thank you so much for your kind listening. I hope something was said that was helpful and encouraging to you in some way. Like I said, I was asked to preach on the passage. I've always believed that that's what the passage meant, but I've never really preached on that passage. I hope it was beneficial to you.